Tonight, we're going to study one of the six, or sorry, one of the seven feasts that um, God gave Israel to commemorate his plan of salvation. And so we're going to start uh, with the sixth feast. And that, of course, is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippurim. And it really means plural, the Day of Atonements, because on that day, there were several things that the high priest had to do. But the fundamental part of this feast concerned the high priest selecting two goats and laying his hand on one of them and pronouncing the sins of Israel on that goat. It's found in our focus scripture tonight in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all. In Judaism, the most sacred of the feasts is, of course, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And we're going to go into why that is tonight and what the significance of it is for Christians and how uh, God chose to model one of his feature plans of salvation in this ceremony. But just as a refresher, we're going to go over all of the feasts um, and their sequence. Of course, um, when they came out of Egypt, God gave Moses these seven feasts to commemorate. You have to remember that most of the people who had come out of Egypt were maybe not even literate. Maybe they couldn't read. Maybe there was some proportion who uh, could not read a scroll. And so God gave them these seven feasts as representative and something that they did every year, day after day, uh, commemorating his overall plan of salvation. And of course, the very first one, Passover, commemorates the night that they left Egypt and were freed from the slavery of the Egyptians because they were told to dub the lintel and the doorpost with a lamb that had been slain and had uh, been, been, been cooked, so to speak, and they were to eat it, but they were not to break any of the bones. And they were to take of the blood of that lamb and dub the, the lintel, and everyone who was inside of the house, when the death angel passed over, the firstborn would be saved. And on that second night, they were to leave um, eating unleavened bread. And so the second day is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in fact, actually, it's a seven-day feast that they celebrate today. And that commemorates the fact that they had to leave in a hurry. They could not cook the bread and put yeast and wait for it to rise. And they ate it with bitter herbs. So on the Passover celebration that the Jews commemorate today, they call it the Seder. That is one of the things that they will have, bitter herbs. And then three days later, we celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. And that commemorates the first fruits of the barley harvest. The barley would have been planted in the fall of the previous year, and it would start to be harvested in the month that they left Egypt, which when they left Egypt, that month was called Abib. Today we know it, of course, as Nisan, because it was changed when they went to uh, the Babylonian captivity. They adopted the Persian names for some of their months. But that 
represented the first fruits of the harvest. And they were told that they were to bring of the sheaves of the barley and present it to God as an offering, as a first fruits. Then we have the unusual feast. It's all by itself. Those first three um, all happen in the month of Nisan. But then you have to wait uh, 50 days to the Feast of Pentecost, which is now celebrated in the month, the Jewish month of Sivan. And that represented the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And this time they were to bake uh, the bread with leaven and to bring it and present it before the priests. Again, it was the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And then there were four months to this feast called the Feast of Trumpets, which really not much is said in scripture about the Feast of Trumpets, other than it was a day of blowing trumpets. They would blow the shofar. Israel had two types of horns, the jubilee or silver horn, which was for war, and then you had the shofar, which was the the trumpet that was blown when they were breaking camp, when they were about to leave camp. It was the um, signal to gather around, to pack up tent, to break camp. And then 10 days later, in the month of Tishri, we have the Feast of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which on that day, Israel would, would gather around the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, and the high priest would take a special offering in all the way to the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle that blood around the Ark. And then five days after that, on the 15th of Tishri, they would celebrate or commemorate tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. Today it's called Sukkot. And it is a seven-day feast that commemorates the time when they were living in tents, in the desert, in the wilderness. And so those seven feasts are prophetic for also what God's plan is for the church. In fact, four of them have already been prophetically fulfilled by Jesus. He became our Passover And when his blood is applied to us, then Satan has no power. It's a redemption sacrifice. And we're going to look at that a little bit deeper. And then we have unleavened bread. Jesus was the the, the person, the Bible said, who knew no sin. He was pure. He represents that bread. He says, I am that bread that came down from heaven. And then he arose on the third day on the feast of first fruits. And the Bible says that he is the first fruits of those that rose from the dead, never to die again. And then, as I said, 50 days later, the day of Pentecost was fulfilled literally again by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into that room. The Bible says that there came a sound as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and there appeared upon them cloven tongues as of fire, and they began to speak in other tongues. And so each one of the feasts has a prophetic fulfillment. And so, so far, we've had the first four fulfilled. And we're waiting now for the last three. I represented them on this menorah because they're grouped in, in, in three groups. The first three uh, fall in the spring months, in the, in the month of Nisan, and the last three fall in the fall months or the month of Tishri. And then Pentecost stands by itself in the month of Sivan. So let's look at that. So they're grouped 
opposite each other, the major, the major feasts, and then uh, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, or in the Greek, on the Hebrew tongue, Shavuot, or the Feast of Sevens, stands by, it, by itself. So we can see that God designed these feasts to form a, a prophetic um, calendar for Israel and also for the church. But we're going to focus this night on feast number six, principally. The one before last, the Day of Atonement. And we find the ordinances for that given in Leviticus chapter 16. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, he shall afflict your souls. What it's speaking about is that this was to be treated like a Sabbath. That means all the rules that were on a Sabbath, that means they were not to to cook any food. It was a day of consecration, a day of fasting. He shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger. That means anyone who was living in Israel, whether they were Jews or practicing Jews, would be under the same edict on the Day of Atonement, or a stranger that sojourneth among you. And on that day shall the priest make an atonement, in other words, a covering for you, to cleanse you, and that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now there were many types of sin offering. There were personal sin offerings. Then there were national sin offerings. And then there was this special sin offering that was done once a year for the whole nation. And it was called the Day of Atonement or the Day of Coverings. On that day, God covered the sins. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. God told them that this was something that once instituted, they should continue to do. Of course, today they do not do it because they no longer have a temple. But this was what God commanded them. Now, the first three, as I said, of the feasts happen in the spring months. And then you have Pentecost, which is by itself. And then you have Feast of Trumpets. And then ten days later, this special feast, um, Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Now, the significance of it is this, that the fourth appointment, Pentecost, uh, was for a redemption of our souls. That means when we get the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit seals our soul. Second Corinthians one twenty-two: who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts, the deposit, so to speak. Again, in Ephesians chapter one thirteen, in whom ye also trusted, after that he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that he believed, he were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, once we get the Holy Ghost, why do we need anything else? Well, what this is explaining and the necessity for the Day of Atonement was, we are still have a problem after we have the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans 7 explained that because we have this flesh body, there is a law that is enmity with the law of God. And so getting the Holy Ghost is only the deposit or the earnest of God's final plan. And so that is why we still need to have a Day of Atonement. 
because that is the ceremony that completes the full redemption plan. We have the Holy Spirit, but we're still walking around in these bodies that are not totally subject to us. Paul says in Romans 7, neither can it be. I therefore find that a law that is at war with the law of, of, of God that wants me to do things that uh, I don't want to do. He says, when, when I want to do good, evil is, is there. So we, once we have the Holy Spirit, what is sanctified is our soul. We still have to deal with this body. Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. What this is speaking about is there, was, there is coming yet a day when God finishes the process and gives us a new body, a day of redemption body. So the atonement ceremony that the Jews modeled for thousands of years symbolizes that day when finally the sin problem as far as our bodies is dealt with. As far as our soul, the sin, sin problem was dealt with at Calvary. But still, we have these bodies that we have to deal with. And that's why the Bible says that we are buried with Christ in baptism so that we should reckon our bodies, our flesh bodies, dead. Amen. In Romans, Paul starts to explain this. Remember in verse in chapter 17, explaining that that he has still to deal with this body. That means we still have urges. We still have things that we have to fight. That's why he says, I have to die daily. And then he's explaining that we're waiting for that complete redemption where the final uh, part of God's plan is finished. So far, we've come through Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, and then we have trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles to go. And so in Romans eight nineteen, he explains, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. We're waiting for that son of God body. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. What he's saying is God has to allow this body to die. The only way we get a new body is if this body dies. Symbolically, when we baptize, we are identifying in Christ's death. But we're like dead men walking because this fleshly body is still around and our soul still inhabits it. So God, here Paul is explaining the whole creation is waiting for God to bring us back to the Garden of Eden state. It says that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. All you have to do is look at what's going on in the world. Wars, um, earthquakes, volcanoes in Iceland tonight. They're, they're waiting some huge volcano to explode. Uh, famines, pestilences. The whole creation is groaning, waiting for God to come and put it back as it was in the beginning. And that includes even us as children of God to get our new bodies. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons. In fact, the redemption of our bodies. Our soul is sealed But now we're waiting for that last part, the redemption of our bodies. Amen. That's what God has promised. That's why he says, when we see him, we shall be like him. Amen. So just to explain, 
When we were originally created, we were a three-part being. We were a spirit, the soul of man, put in a fleshly body, made from the dust of the earth, and then covered with God's spirit. That's what made Adam a son of God. When he sinned, that day that he sinned, the Bible said something was going to die. And what died was God's covering spirit. He withdrew it, leaving man just a body and soul. And from that, that time on, we just became sons of men. So a son of man is born just a body and soul. But if we are born again and get back God's spirit, then we become a son of God. When God gives us that covering spirit that he promised on the day of Pentecost, then the Bible says that we become sons of God. Those that are led by the spirit, to them gave he power to become a son of God. Amen. He gives us that spirit. But as I said, there is still a problem. This flesh, which is still unregenerated, is still uh, liable to sin. And so God instituted baptism as a temporary washing symbolically to identify with his death. But it's not the final solution. It's the atonement ceremony that represents the final solution, where God gives us a new body. And I'm going to talk about that. And it's the purpose for fixing the problem with our fleshly bodies. Because right now we are a spirit or soul of man. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that is sealed according to Ephesians. But that is still in a body that is subject to to all kinds of things. But when this body dies, then our soul is released, as I'm showing in the graphic. And at death, our soul is released. Now, if you're a Christian, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But those of us who are alive and remain, the Bible says we shall be changed. So what God is going to do is through the atonement ceremony, give us a new body. And that's what the atonement ceremony Uh, represents. It's the point of separation of the body from the soul for the purpose of fixing the problem, of giving us a new and glorious body. Hebrews 4.12 explains that. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul, or in the Greek, the suki, the spirit, in the Greek, the pneuma, and of the joints and the marrow, the body. There is the three parts. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Holy Spirit is going to do the work of, of putting us in a new body. And so we get to witness the ceremony in heaven, the final atonement ceremony. That's what Revelation is all about, the first four, sorry, the first eight chapters, starting at chapter four, is all about the atonement ceremony. We're going to show how that is. In Revelation chapter 4, John has a vision of a door opening in heaven, symbolically. Let's just read it. After this I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as of a trumpet, as it were of a trumpet. Again, this is symbolizing the rapture because we know the Bible says in Thessalonians that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the voice said, come up hither. I will show thee things 
which must be hereafter. So the scene in John's vision changes from the earthly, where he first sees Jesus standing amongst the seven candlesticks, which we're told represent the churches, and the scene shifts to heaven in a rapture moment. And then we begin to understand that a ceremony is about to take place. Now, let's look at the clues that what we're seeing is in fact the fulfillment of the atonement ceremony. We have to go back to the Old Testament and actually look at the steps involved in the atonement ceremony. In Exodus 30 verse 10, it says, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. What is that talking about? Well, in the old tabernacle, there were two altars. On the outside, there was the brazen altar, which was where all the sacrifices were normally made. The animals would be killed in the courtyard, and they would be skinned if they were um, a burnt offering, or if they were a sin offering, they would not be skinned. If they were a fellowship offering, they would be cut up um, and, and part of it sacrificed, part of it eaten. But all of the animals for all of the sacrifices were always killed outside the courtyard. And their blood was then sprinkled on the brazen altar and also on the ground and in front of the first curtain. But their blood was never taken in to the holy place or the most holy place except on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the blood of the killed lamb and of the killed bull and he would take them inside to the holy place where there were three pieces of furniture. As he went into the most holy place on his left would be the candlestick with the seven candles burning. On his right would be the table with the showbread or the bread of his presence where there would be 12 loaves that would be for the priest. And right in front of him, front of him, just before the curtain where the cherubim were engraved, would be the golden altar of incense. And every day there would be incense and coals placed on it so that there would be a fragrant uh, uh, savor rising up. And of course, we know from Revelation that represents the prayers of the saints. But only on the Day of Atonement would blood be taken in and would be put on the horns of that altar. Let's look at it. And once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of the atonements or the coverings, once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Now, this is the clue that tells us what we're seeing or reading about in the book of Revelations from chapters 4 through 8 is the atonement ceremony. Because in Revelation we see the blood put on the horns of the heavenly altar, the altar of incense, which only happened in the earthly on the day of atonement. So this is the clue that God has given us so we can understand what's happening in the book of Revelation. Hebrews 9.12 also reinforces that, speaking of Jesus, who is, in this case, acting as our high priest. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That means this is not a ceremony that is going to be repeated over and over. 
The ceremony actually started when Jesus died. And it's the reason right now that we still are able to come to him because the ceremony has not closed out. But there is coming a day when the ceremony will be ended and there will no longer be an opportunity to have that blood applied. Again, let's look at some further clues. As I said, it was only on the day of atonement that the blood was put on the golden altar. When we go to Revelation in chapter 8 and verse 3, we see this mentioned. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now, this is speaking about the heavenly golden altar. Verse 7. The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. Now what would happen on the earthly is the priest would take a a little shovel and take the coals off the fire and mingle the blood from the sacrifice on that shovel so that there would be a steam coming off. And so this is the clue, the further clue, that Revelation chapters 4 through 8 is giving us the atonement ceremony. The beautiful thing is we get to witness it in heaven. There are some further clues that explain this sixth appointment with God. In Revelation 5, 6, he looks and behold, lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, the four creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, this is very interesting because... Normally, in the offerings, you find that it mentions offering a lamb. In the Old Testament, it was a lamb, an unblemished lamb for the regular daily sin offering. But for the atonement offering, it could be a lamb of the goats that was offered. This means it had horns. This is our other clue that this is the atonement ceremony. Now, let's go back to Exodus and start to, I'm sorry, Leviticus, and let's go through the whole ceremony and see how it relates to us getting our new bodies. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8. The the way it would start off is that Aaron shall cast lots upon two goats. They would bring two goats, unblemished kids of the goats, and they would cast a lot or dice to choose which one was going to be for the Lord And it says in your King James Version, the other one for the scapegoat. But in actual fact, that word scapegoat is in fact a Hebrew proper name. And the name means Azazel. Azazel. So one of the goats was going to be Hashem, or for the Lord. The other goat was for this name called Azazel. And they would cast a lot and then they would choose which goat was going to be which. Now that name, Azazel, uh, refers, when you study it, is the name of a demonic entity. Now that seems so strange, but what this is representing is probably the proper name for Satan. He has many names, Beelzebub, Lucifer. But in this ceremony, his name was given as Azazel. In the Hebrew It's translated scapegoat, but in the Hebrew, it is a proper name. Now, what is this symbolizing? Remember in the garden, when 
Satan had cheated Adam and Eve and God started to question them and the woman said, it was the serpent that deceived me. Adam said, it was the woman that you gave me. The woman said, it was the serpent that deceived me. And so finally God got to the serpent and said, because thou hast done this, on your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat the rest of your life. You see, he was symbolizing the fact that this body, this super, which was a supernatural immortal body, was now going to be subject to death and it was going to return back to the dust. Satan's original plan was to somehow control this body. He wanted the supernatural body for himself. But God was saying, listen, I'm now going to allow this body to decay, to turn to dust. And that's what you're going to get. So in the atonement ceremony, once the priest put his hand on the goat that had been chosen for Azazel, all of the sins were pronounced upon that goat. In other words, all the sins were pronounced on the flesh. And guess what? The flesh dies. It turns back to dust. So symbolically, they would then take that goat for Azazel and lead it as far as they could from the camp to Azazel to die, to the, to the, to the one who it belonged to. Because Paul in Romans says that this, this body is no longer subject to the law of God, and that's why it has to die. That's why it's past fixing. That's why God has gone away to prepare us a new body, a glorious body. And so in the atonement ceremony, this is what is symbolized. It's symbolizing the time when the body dies. The flesh goes to the grave. But the soul, the other goat, was taken all the way in to the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when Jesus was crucified? Where did he go? He went down to the grave. He went down to hell. Because all of the sins were pronounced on him and he took them in his flesh. The Bible said he that knew no sin became sin. He took all our sins upon himself. That if we have that blood applied in Hebrews, in, in Romans 10, 4, it says that there is, there is, um, the law hath no more power. Amen. That there is no more accounting. There, God is not holding it against us because Jesus took our sins away. Just as how the high priest would lay his hands upon that goat and pronounce all the sins of Israel, then they would take it away. And for that rest of that day or for however long, everyone was sinless because it had been pronounced upon the goat. So let me recap to explain. Remember now, the son of man is just a body and soul. And the atonement ceremony represents the separation of the body from soul. That's the symbolism of the two goats. One represents the soul. One represents the flesh. The one that's flesh is going to die. Your body is destined to die. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says, speaking to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In the end, instead of getting an immortal body that was going to live forever as God had originally created Adam, all he's going to get is dust. All he's going to get is dust. Amen. So the ceremony now can be revealed. Leviticus 16, 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him, all the iniquities 
of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. See, this was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Getting ahead of myself, but you remember the high priest said, it's better that one man should die for the sins of the whole nations. I believe that's in Mark. And the Bible says that he said this not of himself. The Holy Spirit made him designate Jesus as being our scapegoat. So the high priest pronounces all the sin on the goat to Azazel. Do we understand what what God did? He took away our sins in his flesh. That when we identify with with his burial and baptism, our sins are remitted. Here it is in John 11, 49. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, He know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. The Bible explains to us that God made him do this in his role as high priest. He was actually selecting Jesus to be the atonement offering. Verse 51, and he spake this not of himself. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. Verse 52. But not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one. The children of God that were scattered abroad. God came to fulfill that plan in the atonement ceremony. Remember when John first saw Jesus, that is John the Baptist, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. God had brought this ceremony over and over all these thousands of years, leading up to the day when the true Lamb of God could come, be designated our scapegoat, And in his flesh, the Bible said, condemn sin, sin in the flesh. He became our, so it took the punishment, his body, for all our sins. This was prophesied in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. In fact, this ceremony was so meticulously um, symbolized when it came to Jesus. So the high priest would then pronounce the sin and they would get a fit man to take the goat and lead it out far away to be killed. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. And then shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. The amazing thing is how God made this actually happen with Jesus. If you remember, he could not carry the cross. And so they got a fit man to take him away. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-one, And after that they mocked him. They took the robe off of him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. 
And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Do you see how God set up the symbolism, the fulfillment of the beginning of the atonement ceremony? So the first goat was sent to Azazel. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in that wilderness. In the Hebrew, it's Gerza, or a place of separation. The Bible says that Jesus went down into hell. He took the flesh to hell, to Azazel, so to speak. So the body taking away the sins to its owner. Satan, devil, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. That's why Paul says that I die daily. We are dead men walking. See, in the atonement ceremony, the sins was taken out to this place that modeled hell, the place of judgment. Leviticus 22, And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. He shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And the Hebrew word there is gizar, gizra, a place of separation. Ephesians 4 9 tells us what happened when Jesus died. Now that he is ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? 1 Peter 3.18 explains, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached or proclaimed unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved, by water. This is the ceremony that John begins to see being fulfilled in heaven. He sees the lamb or the kid of the goat that has been slain. That represents the soul. Remember, there's two of them. When Jesus died, that was the first part of the ceremony. He was the scapegoat that went into hell. But he's also the other goat as well. He fulfills both parts of the ceremony. He fulfilled both parts of the ceremony. So the second goat represents our soul, which when we die, the Bible says our soul returns to the maker, the one who gave it. And of course, the blood, which is the covering for the soul, is taken in this bowl behind the veil. The only time in the year that that's happened and presented and sprinkled upon the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant In other words, giving the soul back to God. The blood which is taken behind the veil, sprinkled on the ark. And then on the earth. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. In the ceremony, it's representing exactly what's going to happen. The reason why the soul is given back to God is so that he can put it in a brand new body. So this ceremony that was carried out when the priest would come and he would take the the blood of the other goat, which represented his soul, and sprinkle it 
symbolically giving it back to God. And the reason is it's given back to God is for the purpose of putting it in a new body. Amen. We're going to get back that supernatural son of God body, glorified body, covered with the Shekinah glory. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What we have now is only the deposit. When you get the Holy Spirit, it's only the deposit on the house. You haven't moved into the house yet. See, the only ones who did were those who resurrected with Jesus and, of course, Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. When he rose up, there was an earthquake. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it, not to let Jesus out, but to show that the tomb was empty. You understand that we get to see the redemption ceremony when we get the new bodies. John, in his vision, saw the 24 elders, and they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's a sevenfold praise. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The Bible says that you are worthy because you have redeemed us through your blood. Amen. That's who the 24 elders are. They represent the redeemed. The Bible says if you will endure to the end, if you will be obedient to the command. See, faith by itself is dead, says James, but faith when it is acted upon and is obedient. Paul said, I was not disobedient to the command. I didn't waste God's grace, but I worked even harder so that his, his grace would be manifested in my life. Amen. Isn't it awesome that God has this day in store for those who love him. That one of these days, very soon, we get to celebrate the final atonement ceremony, the at-one-ment ceremony, the ceremony that puts an end to the sin problem once and for all. Jesus started it, of course, on Calvary. And we have now the deposit, the Holy Spirit. But we're waiting as he puts it in Romans, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain, waiting to wait for the redemption and revelation of the sons of God. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you tonight.
for your word. Let it find good soil. Let it motivate us. Let it edify our hearts. Let it increase our faith, Lord, as we look forward to the day when you shall break those skies, when the trumpet will sound, when the dead in Christ shall arise first, and we that are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet you in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Lord, I pray, O God, help us to never forget Lord Jesus, give us the strength. Let your grace be manifest in our lives today. Let us hold fast, hallelujah, to what you have first given us. Let us not be deceived in this day of lies and deceptions by false doctrine, but to hold fast unto your word. We thank you right now. We lift up your name and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name.